the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, weaving in and out of space time on a ship that pauses for deep reflection after every second planet it passes. Hey, it's better than taking the bus. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Chris Weave. Chris is the president of BU9. This is David Weber's Honorverse Consulting Group. Chris was an editor and an author on House of Steel, the Honorverse Companion, and generally has the inside track on all the inner workings of David Weber's Honorverse. He's a trusted advisor to David in his position in the BU9 group. Chris also has a fascinating background of his own, as do lots of those guys in BU9. So that's coming up, and we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, I wanted to tell you about the April contest, which starts Sunday or even Saturday at 12.01 a.m. If you happen to be up, here it is. Die laughing. It's April Fool's. This year, the favorite holiday of pranksters everywhere falls one day before the release of the new entry in the Half-Life Chronicles, A Witch in Time by William Mark Simmons. The book finds half-vampire private investigator Chris Chete pitted against all manner of monsters, which got us thinking. Monsters were real, and we're not saying they aren't, mind you. How would you prank them on April Fool's Day? Assuming that you had the nerve to prank them at all, would you replace Dracula's onion salt with garlic powder? Swap the wolfman's plasticware for grandma's good silver? The real stuff. Tell us for a chance to win a copy of A Witch in Time, signed by William Mark Simmons. For more info and how to send your entry in, visit the contest page at bain.com forward slash contest. That's bain.com forward slash contest. Then send us your most monstrous idea for a prank on a monster. Your signed copy of A Witch in Time may just be waiting on the other side of the veil. I want to welcome Chris Weave back to the podcast. How's it going? It's going very well. Great. Chris is, uh, I don't know, what is your title in BU9 these days? So I am the president and designated extrovert. Chris uh, is the president and designated ex- extrovert of BU9, which is the, uh, the collective of consultants who advise David Weber on his Honorverse in the Honor Harrington series that um, David... Uh, uses as sort of a backstop on all things Honorverse. It's a very cool uh, organization filled with some really impressive guys and gals. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, Chris, as we start. So uh, I don't have a I don't have a biography in front of me. We've interviewed you before, but uh, okay. So I'm a I'm a naval analyst in my day job. Um, I spent five years as a professor of wargaming at the Naval War College where I was a wargame designer and analyst. Um, Before that I spent six years at the Center for Naval Analysis 
where I was a war game designer and I also was the crazy guy you could get to go ride a ship for an exercise. And so um, CNA is sort of the Navy's equivalent of the Rand Corporation. In fact, if you've seen the movie Top Gun, Kelly McGillis's character is based on a real person who I used to work for. So, so I've been I did that for eleven years, and now I'm off in another little piece of DoD. Mm-hmm. But that's the interesting part of what I used yeah. to do. So, how did you? What's your involvement with? How did it begin with Bu Nine, and how? Um, and how did it evolve? What's the so story it, there? It all started off with basically a game that was set in uh, the Honor Harrington universe called Saganami Island Tactical Simulator. And the guy who put together that game, a guy named Ken Burnside, there were a bunch of us that were in contact with Ken. I knew him through a mailing list that I had created called called SFCONSML, which is a science fiction war games mailing list. A bunch of other people contacted Ken directly when this game came out. They're all uh, David Weber, Honor Harrington fans. And so at some point, there was an initial movie effort to try to make a movie in the Honorverse. This wasn't the later effort that Evergreen Studios did. This was before Evergreen. And Ken put all of us in touch with the guy who was trying to make that movie so that we could advise him on things like set design and you know what does the what what does the combat information center of a of a real navy ship look like because he wanted to use it as a model for Honorverse ships. And so we started off as sort of a mailing list. Uh, then when it came time for the 2013 anniversary of the of On Basilis Station, uh, Tony Weisskopf and David Weber were having a conversation, and Tony said we should do some sort of companion volume or something like that to celebrate. And David said, I know just the people to do it, because at, by that point we had been meeting with David Weber on an, on a, an annual basis. We had... Um, we had our annual meeting, we called it HonorCon, which we then later stole that name from ourselves to use as the name of a science fiction convention. But at the time we just called it HonorCon and we'd get together um, in Norfolk or Greenville or someplace and just spend a weekend talking Honorverse issues with David. So David tells Tony, I know just the people who could write this book. Um, Tony had a little bit of a hard time wrapping her head around a contract with a mailing list. And so we said to Tony, would it help if we incorporated? And she said, yeah, that would help a lot. So we then officially incorporated. How many um, are there about? Ooh, 25-ish, 20-ish, something Mm. like that. Um, There's some members that are way more active than others. There are some that were active previously and have sort of fallen off the activity levels. And Um, you exchanged... uh, so what was the process before and uh, and that led up to the to the companion? Um, you exchanged little like little essays or uh, it was, was just uh, basically an in depth discussion, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it started off with just little side conversations. Tom Pope, who is the chairman of the board and my my predecessor as president, um, and who decided he didn't want to be president because he is not an extrovert. Um, uh, and so, uh, he handed that job to me because I can go off and talk with people that I've never met before. Yeah. He's uh, also, by the way, Tom is a, a co-author on the, um, the, uh, Manticore Rising series that David and Tim's honor writing with, with Yes. Tom. 
Yeah, so Tom is, Tom is living the dream right now in that he's, he gets to, to be paid to do science fiction stuff. And, and, um, and make robots. And make robots, uh, which is what he does with his kids. His kids ha- are, I forget how many robot teams now he's a technical advisor for, um, but they're nationally competitive. So um, that sucks up a bunch of his time. Um, yeah. So there were converse, side conversations that took place. David and Tom at one point were basically, they had a set, they would, talk Friday nights at 10 p.m. and talk for an hour or two just sort of hashing stuff out. Um, Now we've actually got an internal website that we exchange stuff through. We still try to get together at least once a year. Uh, We got together this past July and uh, one of our new members, uh, Peter Gold, who's a merchant mariner in his day job, um, he's brought a lot more interest in the uh, shipping and merchant marine side of the honorverse. Um, he's he's wanted to sort of explore that. Um, I've become interested in that also. So we actually ended up spending a weekend where where we didn't really talk about warships at all. We almost exclusively talked about trade and container shipping, etc. And even came up with an a new type of uh, ship for the honorverse that I actually briefed to David about this time yesterday. Uh-huh. Well, let's let's talk more about that in a moment. But uh, let let me just uh, get in the fact that there there the Honorverse Companion exists, um, and that there's going to be another one. The first one was called House of Steel, um, and it's got a novella by David, and it's got these cool uh, technical articles by Bunai members. Plus, it's got some excellent uh, four color. Uh, uh, illustrations and, and diagrams and such of, of all the things that are in David's David's universe. Um, what aspect did you handle? Um, so you I were did, an editor on some of it, too. Yeah, well. I was the copy editor on, on a bunch of it. So um, it... <laughs> I was mostly the copy editor. I mean, it was a little bit more than copy editing. I spent a lot of time making sure that, like, I'd read the the Grayson article, and then I'd read the Manticore article, and I'd say, okay, in the Grayson article, we cover topics A, B, and C, and in the Manticore article, we cover B, C, and D. Those need to match. We need to sort of have some consistency in format. Um, I spent a, spent a fair amount of time rewriting some things to both make it fit in with that format and to fill in some holes. And then I ended up doing an article at the end with David called Building a Navy in the Honorverse, which is based upon, uh, originally based upon a slide that was in a presentation that I received when I was a professor at the Naval War College. And I said, hey, can I have a copy of that slide? And, you know, is it classified? And they said, no, it's unclassified here. You can have a copy. Um, When I asked for the slide, I didn't mention Starships even once. Um, They gave me a copy of the slide. And it's a nice little model of all the things that you need to think about if you're designing a Navy. It starts with strategy on the far left-hand side. And on the far right-hand side, it's talking about things like, like training and personnel tempo and things like that. If you can answer the questions in all the boxes consistently, you've got yourself a Navy. Hmm, cool. So, and there's another Honorverse companion that is, it's in the works? Um, It's in the works. Um, What's the name of that one? That's going to be House of Lies. It's Mm going to cover uh, the Andermani Empire and the People's Republic of Haven. Well, Haven in all of its forms. Um, We're probably writing-wise about 70 to 80% done on it, which means that overall we're probably in the 40 to 50% mark on that. Um, 
It's been taking a little bit longer than we wanted it to, um, in part because Tom is a major player and he's busy doing Manticore Ascendant, in part because David has had some scheduling issues, and so we've, we've been sort of taking advantage of the fact that, that David's sort of out of pocket anyway, um, and in part because the rest of us have had a severe case of life occurring. Um, I spent about, uh, uh, I've taken about a total of two months worth of medical leave this year, and I'm not the only one who's done stuff like that. So we're at the point where we're trying to basically regroup and start that process up again. Um, so, uh, Tony Weisskopf, if you're listening, it's coming, it's coming. I promise. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, and, and it, it is highly anticipated as well. Um, so, uh, tell us more about this container ship, uh, stuff and what, what, why is this of, uh, so fascinating for the honorverse? Well, there's uh, a lot of trade going on in the honorverse. Yeah, there's a sure. lot of trade going on in the honorverse. And in a lot of ways, the honorverse trade uh, assumptions are actually very similar to the current trade assumptions. Most people don't understand exactly how important containers and container ships have been. If you think about shipping in, in, in science fiction and in the real world, most people have this image of big cargo nets lifting boxes out of ships, right? And a lot of the science fiction out there that's written is sort of written with the idea that you're sort of putting boxes in holds, et cetera, et cetera. That isn't really how the world has worked uh, for a long time now. It started changing in the 1950s um, with the advent. Somebody came up with the idea of like, what if we just take the trailer of a semi-tractor trailer combination and ship the trailer, and then at the other end, we'll just connect the semi. Well, then they realized, no, you don't really want to take the wheels with it, et cetera, because it makes it hard to stack, et cetera. What if we just take the body and put it on a trailer when we get there? Because you can lift these with a crane, et cetera, et cetera. In the old days, when you were shipping something, any time it moved from like the shore to the ship, back to shore, onto a train, et cetera, et cetera. It involved guys having to go and pick it up. And so there was cost associated with all of that. The middleman, yes. Yeah, there's always a middleman. And you've got uh, unions going on strike, and you can never predict exactly how long it's going to take to unload the ship. It could take a week. It could take two weeks. It was very unpredictable and it was very expensive. About half the total cost of shipping from, say, like Europe to Indianapolis was based on shipping. Containers allow you to do true intermodal uh, transport, where rather than have guys unloading and loading, you have a crane that picks it off the ship, puts it on a truck, that takes it to the train station, another crane puts it onto the train, and it goes to its final location. So modern shipping is so cheap that when they're trying to set the price of the goods inside the, 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 the thing, they generally don't include the price of shipping. It's kind of lost in the wash. And that's how it works now. And, you, and you, the other thing is rather than taking a week or two to load and unload a ship, you can do it in about six hours. So it makes sense that this model is the model that would be used in the Honorverse. And we knew from talking with David and from reading the books that David had a container ship model in mind would be the cost of the shipping. You know, so whatever it is you're buying from Europe, the price just doubled. Well, we sat down and started thinking, what does that container ship look like? Or what might it look like? 
And so we figured that there are probably container ships that look a lot like the ones we've got now, where you just sort of, you know, last on, first off, you just sort of stack them in there, et cetera. Um, from talking with David yesterday, there's a little bit more to it in his mind on, on how that bulk type of shipping works. We came up with the idea of what we call a rotary container ship, where basically the uh, containers are attached to rotating rings within the hull of the ship. There's an empty core that lets you move containers from ring to ring. All this is done with gravitics. And as a result of that, you can minimize your onload and offload time. You can just, you pull into port, you start spitting out containers, you take new ones in as fast as you can get it. And then in, as the ship moves to the next star, um, there's a process that I refer to as defragging your freighter, where you go, okay, the next destination is, you know, Beowulf. And for Beowulf, these containers, we know they're going there because we can read the little microchip, well, macrochip. I mean, basically, each one of these containers is going to have a fairly dumb computer in it. And by dumb, I mean the equivalent of a modern supercomputer, mm -hmm. right? Because it's the onverse, <clears throat> right? Yeah. And so you go to the next star. And by the time you get to the next star, all the containers that are going to be at that star, offloaded at that station, you can spit them right out because they're they're the ones that are nearest to the uh, to the um, um, uh, port. Ex exit port. Hang on, just a minute. I'm, I'm sorry, Jenny. That's fine. No one. I walked the whole way around. All right. That's for you. Hi. Hello. Hello. I think we kept missing each other. I was trying to follow. Sure. Up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, here, Grace. I, I do think it's um, it's really ironic that we just got a FedEx delivery while talking about shipping. Mm-hmm. That is true. Maybe we should just leave it in. <laughs> we could. We could. Uh, because the... Well, it's 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 an interesting visual concept of a, of a ship that's just sort of encrusted with containers, right? That's well, like... yeah. They're all... Our idea is that they're all in the hull, and... We also came up, we started thinking about what type of containers you might have in there. And we included things like like containers that are outfitted for passengers. And then we started thinking about, well, you could use this thing as a colony transport, right? With the idea being that you take all the containers down to the planet and, the, and there's two different kinds of containers. There's one about the size of a regular shipping container. Um, I forget the exact dimensions, um, but it's approximately, you know, like eight feet by eight feet by 40 feet, something like that. Um, and then there's a bigger container package that it fits into because when you've got gravitics, you know, you want to bundle as many of these as you can handle. But once you get it down to the planet, you probably want to break it up because you've, you know, you got to deal with loading docks and stuff like that. So you've got these bigger containers. They're like the size of small buildings. So you go to the colony world, you offload all the stuff. Um, you've probably packed a bunch of extra stuff into the core hull, maybe the parts for the space station you're going to put in orbit. Our back-of-the-envelope calculation is that you could take about 15,000 colonists and all of the stuff that they need on a transport that's about 5 million tons, which in honorverse terms is kind of medium-sized. And so um, we haven't really thought through where, like, you know, who uses this, etc., um, David, um, David doesn't think that this is something that, that every company is going to use, that it's kind of a niche product, um, which makes sense. You know, some, just like nowadays, some container ships are basically, they go from A to B to A to B to A to B. They, they're just constantly going back and forth. 
other shipping is more about like postal delivery routes, right? I've got stuff that I need to drop off. Our theory is that in an interstellar situation, you know, there's going to be particular companies that are going to be wanting to do circuits, right? They're going to, like the triangle trade, they're going to be going A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And so the ability to, to manipulate things is probably going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. So how did you just... Um... In our real world, how did you uh, present this to David? Was it, uh, did you do a PowerPoint and say, look? I put together a PowerPoint um, that was really sort of tailored specifically for David. Um, at some point, I'll, we'll probably start doing it as a presentation. In fact, um, we should talk about whether it makes sense for an article for the website. Um, uh, so David, we, we were looking for where we could fit in the schedule mm. as it was, um, the place where I could fit it in the schedule where David could fit it in his schedule was while he was doing a signing. So, um, I showed this to him on my iPad the entire time people are coming up and he's taking time off to sign books, etc. It wasn't, um, it was a, if you've ever interacted with David, it's mm. a very sort of David like situation. Um, but we have some artwork that we've done. In fact, we've, we managed to do a one generation of artwork during the, the Bunine annual meeting, just doing CAD CAM stuff. And then we've done another generation of artwork since then that sort of shows how it all fits together. So we were able to uh, present him with pictures of how we envisioned it. Um, so it was actually, it was a very fun weekend. It was a great little project for us. That sounds really cool. Um, and uh, it, it one thinks about ways it will fit in into the uh, into the honorverse post uncompromising honor as well, which could have some some cool implications of various storylines that might. Yeah, I could easily see there being being you know we we have we've seen a few Merchant Mariner uh, uh, um, uh, characters, but we haven't seen a whole lot of them. I think there's a one of the things about the honorverse is that there's so many unexplored. Uh, ex- unexplored areas of it that there's a lot of room to to grow in there. So even though David's sort of bringing that main timeline to the end, um, even sort of ignoring the fact that there are f- stories set in the future that he wants to tell, there's a lot of stories uh, around um, that are um, that need need to be told. I mean, there's I kind of think of it as Steve Miller and Sharon Lee's Liaden universe set within the Honorverse. Right, they're mm-hmm. they're mostly about trade, et cetera, et yeah, cetera. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of room for drama in there that doesn't involve yeah, dreadnoughts. Sure. Well, David is as I mean in in our last our long interview on Uncompromising Honor, he was talking about how he's got so many stories uh, in mind that uh, that he's never going to be able to tell them, uh, perhaps, and 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 want some help. Um, so. Yeah, this is just another uh, amazing uh, working out of the of the the shadows of the honorverse, and and it's uh, the world is just incredibly complex and cool in a way that um, you know David envisioned, but that a, a group of people have uh, have sort of helped him helped him work out, and uh, it just makes every everything about the honorverse more detailed and more cool and more. Um, more textured and and excellent so um tell us some more you have some stuff that we might discuss about um, navies in space that are not necessarily just the honorverse navy um 
you had a interesting idea about what the U.S. Navy taught you about Starfleet. What? Uh... That's a that's a presentation that I do on a fairly regular basis. I did it this past weekend. It started as a talk I did at the Philadelphia Science Fiction Society back in 2013, um, where they invited me to be their monthly speaker for the month of December and. I said, what do you want me to talk about? And they said, oh, anything that you want. And I said, that's not helping. (laughs) (laughs) And so I finally settled on this topic of what the U.S. Navy taught me about Starfleet um, because I spent uh, a lot of time on Navy ships watching naval officers do their thing. Um, And uh, I always say that when I went on board, I always had two notebooks. I had one notebook that I used to collect data for whatever exercise or whatever reason I was there. I was always there working. And so one notebook was about collecting data for whatever that that particular project was. And the other notebook was just like, what what's it like being on a ship? And how do the phones work? And you know, how's the plumbing work? And what color is the floor? And I mean, I literally have, a, have an entry on how the color of the floor changes when you go from one type of space to another type of space. You, if you're on a Navy vessel, U.S. Navy vessel, you can look at the floor and you can tell what type of space you're in. Um, and so um, so I basically do this compare and contrast. Um, and uh, there's um, a lot of things. I mean, it's a very different operating environment that the U.S. Navy operates in. Um, so I talk a little bit about how what the operating environment looks like. I talk a little bit about the things that the that make it really much easier for the U.S. Navy than Starfleet. There's other things that make it a lot harder for the U.S. Navy than Starfleet. I mean, the U.S. Navy uh, has the advantage, for instance, there are, there are no recorded instances of a U.S. Navy ship discovering a previously unknown country, right? That, that just doesn't happen they go out with a much, much higher level of knowledge about who they're going to run into than, than Starfleet does. On the other hand, um, Starfleet's gear is incredible. The level of training is incredible because they're always fully trained. Um, they're all, their gear always works. The instances where it doesn't work on the show are usually something's happened to damage it. You know, they've ion storms seem to be the real dangerous thing mm-hmm. you can run into in the original series, and then later on, there's there's always some event that has caused the gear to malfunction. Yeah, those but, nanotech plagues are always yeah stuff yeah. like that. But what you have in, I mean, in the real world, we've all had the experience of we went out to our car and Hold on just a minute. let's get that sound. Go on. So we've all had the experience in the real world of going out to our car, turning the key, and nothing happens. And that happens on ships, too, because there's a lot of gear. It's very complex. Some of it's really been hard used, and that stuff happens. Have we ever seen that happen in Star Trek, where they push the button to go to warp, and it just goes cough and doesn't? The only time I can think of that is in, um, in one of the movies where it was actually sabotaged. So, um, so that's the sort of the sort of stuff I talk about in that talk, and yeah. I'm I, I'm I have plans to turn that into a longer work at some point, but I'm going to try to do the companion first yeah. to make Tony happy. What else? Um, what else have you thought about the that from just a, a naval uh, uh, 
wargaming aspect that applies to like you were, you mentioned command and control systems um yeah so um the navy doesn't really do command and control the way that most that system was not going to be particularly robust um and it wasn't going to be what people assume it does and by command and control i mean like the command hierarchies right the image i'm sure that most people have is that you've got an admiral who's in command of a fleet, and the admiral's giving out a, a fairly steady stream of orders to his subordinates who then execute those orders. The United States Navy hasn't worked that way since the late, the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, because they realized that that system was not going to be particularly robust. Um, and it wasn't going to be robust for two reasons. One is that in fighting the Soviet Union, we could expect that there would be a lot of jamming. So mm -hmm. we, we could expect that our communications would print speeds. An air attack happens a lot faster than a submarine attack does. Submarines, you can be attacked. The other thing is, is that a lot of the different warfare areas move it dramatically. You know, you can be tracking a submarine for days, whereas with an air attack, it generally appears fairly quickly. And so having the admiral and his staff constantly switching modes back and forth between those meant that the, the admiral's going to be spending all of his time sort of in the moment as opposed to being able to sort of stand back and think big picture. So the Navy adopted something known as the Composite Warfare Commander System. And what that basically is, is that you've got subsidiary warfare commanders that are responsible for their own warfare domain. So you've got a sea combat commander who does surface and subsurface. You've got an, an air defense commander that's responsible for, for protecting the battle group. You've got an, uh, a strike commander who's responsible for striking targets ashore and basically everything involving the airplanes that isn't just pure defense. The admiral gives these guys his intent, you know, here's what we're going to do in big picture terms. Yeah. So the, um, uh, the admiral sits back and uh, gives, gives his intent, tells them, you know, like, here's how we're going to fight. Here's, what I, here's the goals I want to accomplish. And then he and his staff just sit back and listen. She does that intermittently all day long. And they don't get on the, the, the radio circuits unless they hear something that they disagree with. I have 87 days of sea time. In those 87 days, I've heard the admiral or his staff get on the radio four times. One of them was, no, don't do what you're doing. Do this instead which is called command by negation. You know, and if you don't hear anything from me, it means I'm happy. The other three were basically, it is now 1640. You were supposed to give us a report at 1630. Where's your report? So, I mean, the admiral and his staff are, you know, they're important. They're, they're, they're talking with them all the time, but you wouldn't know that if you were just listening to the radio. Yeah. And so it occurred to me at one point that this actually... So it's divided into components of... Uh, of things of tasks yeah it's it's task yeah. divided it's functionally yeah. divided and you've got a bunch of major warfare commanders that are responsible for this task yeah. divided it's functionally yeah. divided and you've got a bunch of major warfare commanders that are responsible for the big areas and then you've got something called coordinators like you have a helicopter element coordinator and it's his job to make sure that all the maintenance schedules 
on the helicopters that all the scheduling works out so that when the sea combat commander needs a helicopter to do something there's a helicopter available you don't want everybody flying at the same time because then every, everyone ends up down for maintenance at the same time and so his job is to say things like you know what I know that you guys aren't supposed to do your next maintenance cycle for like another 400 hours. Do it now because otherwise we're going to have this gap later on. You've got a, a bunch of those guys that are responsible for coordinating everything. Um, at some point I realized a lot of this potentially is applicable in a science fiction universe. Um, uh, like I was specifically thinking of, of John Henry's universe where there's a light speed lag. Anytime uh, and the ships are far enough apart that the light speed lag affects the ability of the commander to actually control his forces. Well, that, that Soviet jamming I mentioned earlier, that's an attack on the communications. It's decreasing the ability of the commander to talk. That light speed lag is kind of the same thing. So if you've got a situation like that, if your technological assumptions in a science fiction universe put you in a situation like that, we've already got a solution off the shelf on how to how to handle that from a command and control standpoint. Well, uh, I guess it all depends on what kind of uh, communication systems are in place in, in this particular universe. Um, if you've got a faster than light communication system, everything I said is irrelevant. You don't need to do it that way. But it's one of the comments that I always make um, when people start talking about whether there's stealth in space or whatever is that a lot of this is really technologically dependent. Um, if your ships are moving very slowly um, then there's, and there's lots of time to look for them, they're probably going to be found. If the ships have a tactically useful FTL drive so they can jump into a location very close, you you know it's a lot easier to play submarines in space that way because you get inside the other guy's decision loop so it's all based upon the assumptions um it's not just physics you can have you can have hard science fiction with different technological assumptions that will change the answer even though the physics are hard in all cases that's cool um it's just, uh, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating to, to think about. But is the is the science fiction spaceship naval metaphor really applicable or not? And how would it be applicable? Is the, I mean, is it, is it? Because I, I think we, we, we want it to be so badly. Um, it certainly makes things easier for authors to be able to go to the shelf and pull a model down without having to reinvent that model. And we see various models in use. David is um, fond of saying that, it, that for his universe, it started out as sort of age of sail, broadside sorts of things. Now, it's gotten a lot away from that. I don't remember, I don't remember Admiral Nelson talking about electronic warfare at all. Um, but it's still at its core, there's this element that's really about, you know, forming the wall of battle is a very uh, uh, Napoleonic Wars type of tactic. Um, others have a tendency to gravitate more towards an aircraft carrier in space model or a submarines in space model. We've seen all of those. Um, I think, um, first of all, my, my recommendation to anybody who wanted to do this is don't let your model rule 
um, you know, trump your common sense on stuff. Um, aircraft carriers are a case in point. I love Battlestar Galactica. It's a great show. I am unconvinced that the aircraft carrier in space model is the default model that you should think about. And that's because aircraft carriers are designed around the flight deck. An aircraft carrier is a way of ha having your cake and eating it too, of being able to have a big thing that has a lot of supply, et cetera, et cetera, the ship part, yet still have these high performance uh, ability that you get from airplanes. Um, the reason why aircraft carriers work is because you have both the sea and the sky that you can take advantage of, and you need a big ship with a big flight deck in order to transition the airplanes from the sea to the sky and back. If you don't need to do that transition because, for instance, you're in space and you can just push them out a hatch and they float away, you don't necessarily need that big flight deck, and as a result, you don't need to build a big ship, and as a result, you don't get the the synergistic effects of just basing everything on the big ship. Um, it would be the equivalent of, instead of building an aircraft carrier, you just put a couple of F-35s or Harriers on all the ships in the fleet. And we see that in shows like Babylon 5 and Stargate, where they have ships that are essentially battleships. They don't call them that, but they're essentially battleships that have a small number of fighters on them. You might still want to put all your eggs in one basket because there's some efficiencies of scale in doing that, but you're not required to. In the, the U.S. Navy, if they want to have air power, they're really required to do it that way because the physics just force you to do it that way. So my advice is, you know, don't get wrapped around. Don't let the model trump your common sense. If you're thinking in terms that you want to do that, then you also need to kind of think about why you want to do it that way. Hmm. Well, I mean, from what I've understand about the the F thirty five, and and is, I mean, it's kind of a game changer anyway, and and how it, because it sees over horizons, and it's and it it's sort of like a AWACS Anna fighter, yeah, playing together. And the the F thirty five program has had a few issues, um, in part because it's trying to be all things to all people, um, but um, having seen some of the briefs on it. The capabilities that are that are baked into that design are really pretty phenomenal. That's um, not fully operational yet. They've got a bunch of them in the fleet. They're flying them off of ships. The Air Force has a bunch of them also, um, but they're still at the point where they're the the plan is to sort of add capability over time um, because they wanted to get it out sooner rather than later. And if they waited until all until everything was done, we'd be waiting for another ten years. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what that check can do when it's, when they've, uh, when they flipped all the switches and installed all the software and have all the capabilities ready to, ready to fly. Yeah. Which goes to, I mean, if you're going to do star, starship battles, um, the, the idea that you need visual contact and, and such, uh, is, is that they're, yeah. they're beyond anything that even is earth-like, right? It's. Yeah. So uh, what model could we, what metaphor could we apply to such? I've been doing a lot of thinking, both in the context of the universe and out of it, about what's known um, in air combat circles as beyond visual range combat. 
Because there's really, you can think of air combat as fitting into two categories, within visual range and beyond visual range. So within visual range is dogfighting, your classic dogfighting. Um, if you see a guy um, uh, waving, uh, holding his hands in such a way that it looks like two airplanes flying, they always talk about shooting your watch. Um, because it always looks like the one such a way that it looks like two airplanes flying. They always talk about shooting your watch um, because it always looks like the one guy's hand is pointed at, his, at, at the watch on the other hand. If you're shooting your watch, you're, doing, you're talking about dogfighting, you're talking about air combat maneuvering, and that's all close range. At longer ranges, where you're dealing primarily in the world of radar, there's some very interesting things that take place there. Um, and a lot of this stuff you can read up on by searching for air combat games tactics manuals because the people who do like the F-16 game and F-22 games and all this other stuff, they, they, they've, they've got former Air Force people that, that have written up how you think about this problem. And those guys think in terms of energy states and... Um, and pointing your nose at the enemy and how far off axis you need to be to evade, etc. And they, they think in terms of kill zones in a way that the uh, close range discussions don't cover. So, for instance, if you go to Wikipedia and you look up the AMRAAM missile, it'll tell you it's got a range. Well, only kind of, because... That, air, that missile's being fired off of an airplane that has a speed and an altitude associated with it. And if it's at that speed and altitude, it gets the advantage. You know, if, if, it, if they fire it and you're going at 700 knots, it's already going 700 knots. If it's at a, a 20,000 feet, it's got 20,000 feet to play with. So what the exact range of that, it's the equivalent of if I throw a stone off of my house, the range of the stone may be 50 feet. If I throw it off the Grand Canyon, that the lateral distance may be hundreds of feet before right, it lands, yeah, right? Yeah. And so thinking in terms of just, just range only doesn't make sense. The other thing that's cool about this in my mind is that they've got this elaborate vocabulary to talk about situations. Like Hang when- on just a second, Chris. What do you need? Um, oh, okay. It's uh, in my uh, my jacket. It's hanging up out down on the coat hangers. It's it's the 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 black raincoat. No problem. Hmm. So one of the hmm. other things that I think is really cool about about this particular model is that they've come up with an, a vocabulary to describe these particular situations. So they've got a term that they use for when the kinematics of the weapon you're firing have overmatched the opponent so much that the opponent cannot escape. And so if the opponent doesn't start maneuvering before the missile gets to a particular location, you've got him and he can't get away. And they've and they and there's a term for like what what happens when you're firing at an opponent. There's a term for what happens when the opponent's firing at you, and you're trying to minimize some variables and maximize the other variables. And this is the sort of vocabulary that professionals develop to talk about these situations because you can't in this particular case you just can't talk about speed and range. 
because there's all these other variables that affect the speed and range. So you, so rather than try to put hard numbers on it, they'll say a pole or f pole or something like that, and that means something to the other people. So I've been thinking those are all concepts that would make sense in something like the Honorverse, where you're where the speed of the firing platform makes sense, etc. It would make sense that that people would develop that sort of vocabulary. What does that vocabulary look like? And then comes the question of why haven't we seen it in the books? Or in, and the question of how do you explain it to a reader without it being somebody just saying F pole and A pole, et cetera, et cetera, right? You have to make it understandable. Um, I always approach things from, an, uh, being a naval analyst, I always approach things from the analysis side. So it's like, I wanna build the model and make all that stuff work. And then after I'm done with that, you know, David and Tom and I and others will sit down and try to figure out how to make it fit in such a way that the reader can understand it. Yeah, and also um, <laughs> the the ever uh, burning question of like um, how you could apply any new ideas to to because you have to work things in in such a way that uh, that they've been there all along. Yeah, uh, we spend a lot uh, of time mining the honorverse for stuff. Uh, Andy Presby and I are currently in about year 10, um, no, not quite year 10, maybe year seven of a discussion about how, what exactly does a combat information center in the Honorverse do? Because a lot of the functions that in the United States Navy, a combat information center would do actually take place on the bridge of a starship in the Honorverse. And so one, we both have this project of basically going through all the, exactly what those guys are doing without violating anything that David has said. And I've talked with David about the idea that, that I want to write a couple of little snippets where I, I, and I haven't found the battle to do it, but what I want to do is take an honorverse battle where you see everything from the perspective of the guys on the bridge, but I want to write it from the perspective of what the guys in the combat information center are seeing and doing and what information they're feeding to the bridge. They're clearly a support function the combat decision-making is taking place on the bridge. But what do these guys do? They, they clearly do something because every Honorverse warship has a combat information center. But what they do is not the same thing as what the United States Navy does in their combat information center. So so it is my personal task to figure out what they're doing. <laughs> well, so whether, where is B-9 uh, going next? What's the... I, as a the sort of final question, um, what's what's up with with U um, nine and the Honorverse and and what's next? Well, our our initial um, alligator closest to the boat, as my naval colleagues would say, is to get the next companion out the door. Uh, then we need to to have a conversation with Tony Weisskopf about you know what whether there's interest in doing future companions after that. Um, we've got ideas for at least one more, and we'll see if it makes sense. Um, there's certainly uh, stuff that's taking place in the um, Manticore Rising trilogy that we haven't really looked at. Tom Pope has been playing that universe, but Bu-9 writ large has not been. There's some things there. Um, we suffer from having more ideas than we have time. Um, I know that, like, for instance, the project that really sort of started this, the one that everybody early on said, yeah, 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 I want to do that, was a set of deck plans for the Star Knight class cruiser. And I think Tom's got a draft of that somewhere. 
but we just haven't, you know, we've never been able to get back to that. It just hasn't been the priority project because we've been doing things like the companion. Um, I'd like to see us doing more presentations, et cetera, at cons. I've kind of had in the back of my head the idea that uh, Eric Flint's 1632 universe has a 1632 event each year where they go to a con and it's the, the 1632 mini con. I'd like to see a BU9 or Honorverse mini con where we get as many members of BU9 together and try to sort of replicate what we did in the 2013 Honor Con, which was really about doing the, the data dump on all the things that we had been working on try to try to explain what's going on in the Honorverse and, and present all that stuff. Um, we haven't been able to pull that off fairly recently because everybody's gotten busy, but I can dream. Well, we'll we'll all dream with you, <laughs> because um, I'm there's there's a there's a lot of audience out there that just love to uh, dive into the universe and uh, and think about it even after the uh, the stories are done and just uh, continue the uh, to continue the journey. Yeah, so. this this set of stories will be done, but there's plenty of other stories to tell. True. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, for stopping by and uh, and talking to us about all that's that's going on, Chris. Well, Appreciate thank you for having me. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Maybe I won't miss these practice sessions that much after all, Jagdish muttered as he limped toward his office. What? Return the prisoner to his cell? Ashok enjoyed the bright winter sun on his face until he was put back in his hole. They were coming for him. The footsteps were getting closer. Some of them weren't wearing guard's boots or prisoners' bare feet or coarse sandals, but fine, soft shoes. The prestigious visitors were approaching his cell. Ashok's pulse quickened. It was strange to be so excited for his own death, but the wizard Kuhl had burned away all that he had been before and replaced it with devotion. He'd proven that he was an imperfect servant of the law, but the law was still his foundation, his purpose and now it required him 
to perish. As long as he lived, he would remain an aberration, an element of chaos in an otherwise orderly system. So Ashok would go to his death not just willingly, but eagerly. They stopped outside. This is him. Jagdish. Do you wish an escort? We require privacy. Ashok didn't recognize this voice. Go home, Rizalda. You're bleeding on your uniform. If you would allow it, Your Honor, I would like to stay and hear the prisoner's fate. Clean yourself up, you disgrace. You may return tomorrow. Footsteps retreated as Jagdish was cast out of his own prison. That was disrespectful. But then Ashok corrected himself. He had been away from society for a year, and too much familiarity with the lesser classes had made him soft. A judge could do almost whatever he wanted to his inferiors, and they'd best accept those decisions. Ashok got to his knees, ready to accept his. The door opened. Three men were standing in the hall, and in the instant before he put his forehead to the floor, he saw that one was wearing the blue, gray, and bronze of a great house Vidal judge. Another was wearing the white robes of an arbiter superior, but most importantly, the one in the center was dressed all in black and wearing the ornate golden mask of the Grand Inquisitor himself, one of the most powerful people in the capital. Ashok kept his face down. They wouldn't have sent such important men if the time of his judgment wasn't at hand. His heart rejoiced. Rise, Ashok. He lifted his head. The three men had entered and spread out. There were lesser inquisitors in the hall. The arbiter seemed very nervous about the hems of his fine robe touching the straw. The Grand Inquisitor stopped directly before him. It was hard to tell in the uniform, but he seemed to be an average-sized man, gone a bit plump, and the only parts of his body that were visible were his small, dark eyes and the crow's feet around them. You are aware of who I am? Grand Inquisitor Oman Vulcan. Correct. I wish to make this official so there can be absolutely no question as to the validity of your sentence. He reached into his sash and pulled out a piece of gold jewelry, shaped like a raven. You recognize the symbol of my office? Ashok nodded, so Armand handed him some folded papers. Here are my documents. Ashok had no reason to doubt him, but Armand must have been as much a stickler for the letter of the law as Ashok was, so he carefully inspected the papers. They had been signed and stamped by several extremely high-status officials. The criminal Ashok the Blackheart is remanded into Inquisition custody to be dealt with according to the Grand Inquisitor's wishes. Do you concur? Omand asked the Vadal judge. He's all yours. This was the one who had insulted Rizalda Jagdish. The haughty judge spit on the straw. Good riddance. Omand looked to the arbiter. This transfer of custody is witnessed and approved.
Thank you, honorable gentleman. Now I need to speak with the prisoner alone. The two of them walked out. A lower-ranked inquisitor entered, placed a stool behind Armand, then left, shutting the door behind him. Inquisition business. Armand sat down and made himself comfortable. This shouldn't take long. And then Armand remained there, perfectly still, silently studying him for several long minutes. It was difficult to tell what a man was thinking when you could only see his eyes. Such silent judgment probably unnerved most prisoners, but it meant nothing to a man incapable of fear. So Ashok studied him back. What he found behind those eyes was intense, cold, and somehow broken. Ashok knew it well, because he'd seen something similar every time he had ever looked into a mirror. It took hard men to maintain the sanctity of the law. I will truthfully answer any questions you have to the best of my ability, Ashok stated. If you wish to confirm the accuracy of my answers, I will not resist any tortures you wish to apply. You have my word that Angruvadal will remain sheathed in your presence. It is my understanding that you were an unwilling victim in this fraud. I had no knowledge of my true origins until last year. When I found out, I took action. You never suspected the truth or doubted the false past which was created for you? I did not, but ignorance is no defense. I was born a castless and took honors which were illegal for me to take, so I must be punished. You won't ask for mercy? Of course not. Mercy was a strange concept that Ashok had always struggled with. Mercy was merely the weak trying to rob judgment. I'm guilty. So the law truly is your essence. Kewl wasn't lying about you. Kewl? Ashok tilted his head. You know of the wizard's treachery? Yes. He has been interrogated and punished. Had Devadas brought them to justice? His former brother would never forgive him, but Ashok had known that Devadas would do the right thing. How? That is not your concern. Harto. Chavons. Ashok had no problem going to the eternal nothing, but he would die easier knowing that they'd gone first. I'm aware of Bidea's conspirators, and they will all be dealt with in time. Amand waved one hand dismissively. Harter was an extremely important man, so doubtless the Inquisition had to tread carefully. But nonetheless, Ashok was glad justice would be satisfied. They're not why I'm here. One other question, an unofficial curiosity, really. If you are such a devotee of the law, why kill a member of the first to avenge a castless? Was it so personal because she was your mother? Regardless of my personal beliefs, Bidea had committed crime. Oh, so you weren't avenging your mother. You were avenging the law? 
If only I'd known your motivations were so pure all along, I wouldn't have had to come all this way. Ashok paused for a long time, mulling over the Grand Inquisitor's sarcastic response. He had sworn to tell the truth, so he was obligated to continue, no matter how uncomfortable those truths were. I've had time to think about it, since. Bidea didn't just take my mother from me. She made it so that she never existed at all. Gone. As if they never were. I know that I shouldn't care, but that offended me. Anger clouded my judgment that night. It still clouds my judgment now. There's no excuse for the evil I've done. It is good that you recognize the magnitude of your crimes. Even now, after all this time rotting away in a prison with little else to do but try to remember, he only had tiny glimpses of his real past before the sword. A white smile on a tanned face, eyes bright and proud of her boy. A gentle hand picking bits of grass from his hair as they huddled together for warmth in one corner of a crowded shack. And for all he knew, those were fabrications of his imagination. Forgive my words, Inquisitor, while they sound harsh, but to the ocean with Bidea. I know that the castless are little more than animals, but she was my mother. You learned the truth in the capital. Having just made the same journey myself, I know how long it takes. Omand rubbed his lower back, as if he was so terribly road-weary from what had probably been a ride in a carriage filled with cushions. This was no heat-of-the-moment crime of outrage. You had weeks to calm yourself, to seek legal counsel from the judges, or to speak with your order. But instead, you committed an act of public, premeditated butchery, supposedly for the law, but really for someone you can't even remember. I would do it again, Ashok said. That's another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Bain intern Victoria Lambert for editing help, and the podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and a bruising time-traveling hill ride through the riches of future technical innovation where he'll be allowed to snatch a biophone from the phone tree and use it in the present day to remake all the highway asphalt color to match the pretty lines on the map, or just to find out the horse race winners. Plus, thanks, praise, and plaudits for View 9 director Chris Weave. Please join us next time here at the hammery heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 